New York City. New York City. The billboard is pasted with a half-naked, airbrushed heartthrob. He leans over in just his underwear. The peak position for the photographer to catch the best angle suitable for the graphic designer to touch up here and there, darken and contrast the model's physique. But he must be cold. It's well below freezing, pushing negative degrees Fahrenheit. A line of taxis stretches out across the intersection, disregarding the changing light from red to green. An immigrant from Bangladesh wails on his horn, signaling another cab driver to move into an immovable space. Less than 10 miles to the south and 200 years before, ships dumped immigrants onto the shores of this new empire, this new kingdom. I walk past a cloud of steam rising from the sewer. It intermixes with a boiling vat of hot dog water sold by a man keeping warm next to his job on wheels. But above, inside the cozy brick buildings with fire escapes perched like spiders, high-priced lawyers, investors, and business professionals rent out swanky penthouses for $2,600 a night. There's no plant life. It's all been ripped up and replaced by concrete. Well, it's not entirely true. I guess there's an 843-acre park with a frozen lake and naked trees. Between their branches, I see the towers, the high-rises, where people push paper in fancy suits and dresses, <laughs> making plans to spend happy hour in Greenwich Village, slobbering over overpriced cocktails. Everybody's really important, though, and everybody's got some place to go. Buying, selling, stocks, quarters, fine dining, big law firms, rubbing shoulders and handshakes with the elite. Here, if you ain't first, you're last. If you ain't rising, you're falling. It's cutthroat, and the sharks never cease to circle, eager for the faintest drop of blood. They say that the city, it never sleeps. And I guess that's just how it goes when you're at the center of the world, except for the man I see in the gutter on a mattress of newspapers. Guess he found a way to sleep. But everything about him screams of a, a kingdom on the rise. Sure, the towers fell some 20 years before, but we just replace them and build bigger ones, perhaps like Babel, to make our name great. At least if it's Rockefeller or J.P. Morgan. But power, wealth, status, control, it's the way of the empire. It's the way of the kingdom, and everybody knows it, from the rats scurrying in the sewer to the CEO behind a big desk in a Manhattan skyscraper. Welcome to the kingdom. But when I, when I read the Bible, um, the kingdom I see looks nothing like the pursuit of power, wealth, status, control. It's actually quite the opposite. It's upside down in relation to every worldly pursuit and selfish pleasure. You see, God's kingdom is completely upside down to the look of ours. 
What's highly valued at the top is actually at the bottom. The way up is down. The first are last. The last are first. The least are the greatest. The poor are rich and the rich are poor. You gain life by losing it. You are exalted when you are humble. Your weakness is strength. You rule, reign, and lead by serving. You receive by giving. That's how it goes in God's kingdom in his reign and rule, in his way of doing things. You may say, well, that, that's not how the world works. Well, maybe the world's just working wrong. And come to think of it, maybe it's not God's kingdom that's upside down. Maybe it's ours. And now, if this all feels abrasive and uncomfortable, good, you're tracking with me. As it's so often said, God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. You know, God is really, really good at unsettling our sensitivities and taking what we thought we were so certain and so sure about and turning it upside down. All actually for our own benefit and ultimately for his glory. And so today we begin a brand new sermon series, The Upside Down Kingdom. And in this series, we're going to be exploring the paradox of the cross in the Corinthian letters. And I know paradox, it sounds like a, a big fancy word, a tricky word, but I, I looked it up and it just means something that seems absurd or self-contradictory in nature. Like, that, that can't be. But when you see it, for what it actually is, it's actually true. Sounds tricky, but it's not. And you already know it because it's written all over the Christian life. What seems absurd and unbelievable is actually true. The first are last. The last are first. The least are the greatest. The poor are rich and the rich are poor. Paradox is written all over the Christian life. It seems absurd, but it's actually true. And the paradox of all is this, the cross. The death of Jesus, it looks like utter defeat and failure, an utter letdown. But this act of God's self-giving love, it's ultimate victory. And during this series, we're going to take a long, hard look at our lives. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. But we're going to ask the question, what kingdom am I living for? A New York City, Southern California kingdom where the first are first and it's all about my power, my wealth, my status, my control, or God's upside down kingdom where the least are the greatest and our lives are shaped by the cross. Now, he could be writing to those of power and wealth, status, control in their fancy New York City penthouses, or he could be writing to those of power, wealth, status, control right here today, us in this church. When he writes, you think you already have everything you need. But in this letter, Paul, the former enemy of the church, turned follower of Jesus, he writes to the first century house churches of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a huge, fast-paced city, a seaport in ancient Greece. And as any wealthy seaport of the ancient Roman Empire, the people of Corinth had a reputation for being rowdy, hard-drinking, and sexually unrestrained, like hooking up with anybody. They had all the power, all the wealth, all the status and control imaginable. 
And then when Paul arrives with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus, many of them became believers in Jesus. But when they did so, they brought those reputations with them right into the church. And so Paul, he spends about a year and a half with them as their pastor, going over the good news of Jesus in detail, showing them how to live out this new life of salvation, and then showing them how to live in community as a group of believers. And then he went on his way to other towns and other churches. But then sometime later, Paul receives a report that things had more or less fallen apart in Corinth. They desperately needed help. And so Paul writes them a letter that's more of like a heart to heart. It's affectionate where he says things like, Jesus died and rose for you and God is among you regardless of how much of a mess you've made of things. But at the same time, Paul doesn't pull any punches. He's honest and loving even when it hurts. Like, are you guys crazy? I mean, I mean, you're getting drunk at church gatherings, and that dude is hooking up with who? First Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to check that out. That's, that is some juicy stuff. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to explore just this tiny sliver of Paul's letter, his heart-to-heart -heart with the crazy Corinthian Christians. And I just want to focus on two questions. The first one I already mentioned, what kingdom am I living for? And then the follow-up to that. And what does that say about my status? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. You Corinthians or Southern Californians so consumed with power and wealth and status and control, you think you already have everything you need. Okay, I get it. You've got status. You think you have everything you need. You think you are already rich. Oh, but it's so fleeting. It's so fleeting. It's like you have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. That's how highly you think of your status. Paul's using sarcasm here. He's saying like, <laughs> you guys are acting and living like you're kings. I wish you really were reigning already for then we would be reigning with you instead. I sometimes think God has put us apostles, leaders of the church, flesh and blood, witnesses of Jesus, those who bear his message. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display, like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. So you've got the Corinthian Christians accustomed to power and wealth, status control, living like kings. And then you've got Paul and the apostles with the status of ultimate humiliation, POWs, about to die. It's all upside down. I mean, the, the Corinthians, they live like kings, or better yet, like a Roman general, conquering with the might of all their power, wealth, status, control. They enter into a city and the crowds are roaring. The cobblestone streets echo with the sound of their triumph. And after the procession of soldiers, after the horses come and the chariots pass, then come the prisoners of war. The humiliated bunch, chained and stripped naked, about to be publicly executed in the arena. These are the apostles. 
the leaders of the church, the grand spectacle for the world to see. It's all upside down. Like, like, like what kingdom are the Corinthians living for? And what does that say about their status? Now, hold up. What kingdom am I living for? And what does that say about my status? In my power and in my status as a white, educated, first world person, what kingdom am I living for? And what does that say about my status? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first are last, last are first, the least are the greatest, the the poor are rich, the rich are poor. But bro, you're rich. You're not the least. You're the first. I felt rather embarrassed last month as we hosted a pastor from Uganda. And a huge part of Pastor Willie's ministry is to house and clothe and feed street children in Uganda. Homeless, abandoned, at-risk children. And he sees the one-story house. He sees the two cars in the driveway. He sees the travel trailer. He sees the fully furnished living room. He sees the food in the fridge. He sees multiple pairs of shoes by the door. Thank God he didn't see my garage. (laughs) He would have been like, you surf all those boards at the same time? But welcome to my kingdom. I mean, is this what suffering for the gospel looks like in Southern California? We drive down PCH in the early morning. He tells me about the persecution, the death threats, the acid thrown in his colleague's face. He only has one eye now, but you don't think that stops him from preaching the gospel, do you? And so I had to wrestle with it. Like a lot. Like what, what does my life consist of? And how attached am I to these things? Well, I learned that some stuff should probably go. You know, HBO Max, Hulu, and yeah, some like physical things too. But Pastor Willie was telling me it's not so much about feeling guilty with what you have, but be grateful to God and also to have loose attachments to it all have loose attachments. Then on a deeper level, what do my pursuits and what do my dedications consist of? And are they all just about me or is it all about Jesus? How hotly do I pursue God and the things of God? How dedicated am I to Jesus? As Paul continues in verse 10, our dedication to Christ (laughs) makes us look like fools. They're so dedicated it looks foolish to the world. But you claim to be so wise in Christ. Sarcasm there, if you can catch it. We are weak, but you are so powerful. Sarcasm again. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Even now, we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. Just taste it. Feel it. The parched, dry throats. The achy, empty bellies the shivering and the cold. We are often beaten and have no home, abused, homeless. But don't think for a second they're freeloaders. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. 
And now the Greeks, especially the Corinthians, with their esteemed status, they despised people who did manual labor, regarding it as the work of slaves. But Paul says, nah, we ain't above that. Your honor, shame, value system, it actually means nothing. Because you see, the Christian life is shaped by the cross. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, bearing all sin and all shame for all times and places and generations, then there is no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. The paradox, it seems bogus, totally bogus, totally absurd, but it's actually totally true. Paul's low status is proof of Jesus' exalted status. And now I told you how the Corinthians, they despised people who did manual labor. Well, guess what? They also despised Paul's low status. Paul was poor, persecuted, and homeless. And to top it off, he was a sucky public speaker. But Paul shows them that it's okay to be a public speaker because we all suck. But Paul shows them following Jesus is not about worldly status or self-promotion. In fact, it's the other way around. Real leaders, the real disciples, the real followers of Jesus, they look like humiliated prisoners of war. The beaten, the hungry, the thirsty, the unclothed who are dedicated to Jesus, to the bone. Paul shows us that status, it's not about being impressive, but pointing to the one who is King Jesus. And so he says, we bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. And let's just be honest, that is not what the Corinthians or we in Southern California view as glory or success. No, 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 no. No, glory and success means rubbing shoulders and shaking hands with the elite. It's a swanky penthouse starting at $2,600 a night. It's a, a big desk in a Manhattan skyscraper. It's power, wealth, status, control. It's my kids play for soccer club. It's I drive this car. It's I'm a member at this exclusive whatever. It's I have this many zeros in my bank account. It's I have this many titles to my name. The Honorable Sir, Reverend, Doctor, Master, so-and-so. Is that really glory and success? Is that the status so sought after? Not in God's upside-down kingdom. In God's upside-down kingdom, status, glory, success means following Jesus, whose exaltation through humility, through suffering and execution on a cross so that all the world could be reconciled to God. And guess what? Paul's low status, so despised, so shameful, it, it, it proves that he, that he represents and he points to the crucified, exalted Messiah. It looks all upside down, but it's glory and it's success at its finest. It's a bottom of the barrel status of humility, which is utmost highest in God's kingdom. And no, he's not done yet. His worldly status sinks even lower. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us, yet we are treated like the world's garbage like everybody's trash, literally the waste of all things, the scum of the earth, right up to the present moment. And maybe this is the present moment for we who have so much power and wealth and status and control to turn it upside down. 
Maybe this is the present moment to re-examine things and to learn to live differently with lives shaped by the cross. Asking, what kingdom am I living for? And what does that say about my status? And how can I, as a white, first world, educated person with all the power and wealth and status and control, how can I do something about those who have none? Maybe this is a present moment for my world to be turned upside down, to see that the kingdom that looks so upside down in the world's eyes has always been right side up. Maybe this is the present moment to upend my high status and learn to live a life shaped by the cross. Instead of control, surrender. Instead of worldly status, humility, servanthood, selflessness. Instead of worldly wealth, generosity and sacrifice. Instead of earthly power, Holy Spirit empowerment. Maybe this is the present moment to use all that I am and all that God has given me to make a profound impact in the lives of those who have none. Not even low status, but no status. For when the cross becomes everything that means anything about my status, I begin to live for God's upside-down kingdom, where the way up is actually down. The first are last, and the last are first. The least are truly the greatest. The poor are rich, and the rich are poor. You gain life by losing it. You are exalted when you are humble. Your weakness is strength. You rule, reign, and lead by serving, and you receive by the amazing privilege to give. So would you welcome David Wangaka all the way from Porterville. I mean, it was Kenya before, but (laughs) Porterville kind of, you know, we're a little closer to us. But he is actually a graduate of the Compassion Program. And he's going to share his story with us today. And this is a project that we are hoping to sponsor at Journey to Church, a village in Guatemala. And so... With no further ado, let's give it up one more time for David. Thank you. Amen. Good morning, church. Amen. I, I really want to thank uh, uh, Pastor Jeremy, mostly for pronouncing my last name correctly. <laughs> Most pe- people call me uh, Wakanda just because I'm from Africa, <laughs> which is okay. I, I take it. Um, so in Kenya, where I come from, we speak a language called Swahili language, not Wakanda language, but Swahili. And I just want to teach you a little bit of Swahili language uh, before I continue. Is that okay? So w- when we go to church in the morning, uh, we greet our brothers and sisters in Christ by saying, praise the Lord. And they, they say, praise the Lord uh, or amen. And praise the Lord in Swahili is buana asifiwe. So I'm just going to say buana asifiwe and then you say amen. Okay. But we say amina. Okay. Buana asifiwe. Buana Sifiwe. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, 
I was born and raised in Kenya uh, with two brothers and two sisters. But when I was growing up, I grew up in an environment that was not um, really conducive environment for raising children. The environment I grew up in, there were only two professions there. So we really didn't have anyone to look up to as a, as a good example of what you want to become when you grow up. Because the main profession was either you become a thief as a young person or you become a prostitute. And it was so bad that even the parents of so many other chi or the children, they actually expected you at some point uh, to start bringing revenue to the family just like so-and-so family or so-and-so. And so the danger with that is that so many young people would either get shot or go to jail or die of HIV and AIDS, all those risks. So I remember my mother used to sell illicit brew, like liquor. It was some kind of moonshine, uh, but it was very illegal. She used to distill it and sell it. So most of the time, uh, from my earliest recollection, is that my mom really went to jail and in and out of jail so many times. And because the only money that she would make from that liquor, she would use that actually to bribe the police so that she's released. So it didn't really help with in any way. And so one time she was able to get an, a, a new job, a new different type of profession, and she was employed as a res in a restaurant as a server. And uh, she would work 10 hours a day, uh, making less than $1 a day. So at the end of the month, she would have like around $20. So the priority for her was not even providing for basic needs, but was to pay for the rent. We used to live in a 10 by 10 square feet uh, shack. Um, it was made of corrugated material, uh, rusted corrugated material in, in, in a, in a very filthy area. We didn't have beds. Um, we slept mostly on the ground, on cardboards. Uh, we didn't have blankets. I remember the house, that's, it, it, it's not even supposed to be called a house, maybe I would say, call it a space. Uh, it was divided with curtains where my mom would sleep and the five children on the other side. So during the day, we would use that area as a living area, and then during the night, we would roll down the, the cardboards and make it as a bed. The morning you wake up, you roll it back, you make it um, a living area. Uh, the main issue and the main challenge was even getting food. Uh, my mother could not afford to provide for food and everything else and clothes and stuff. So she would sometimes come with food from the restaurant in the evening, whatever remains, uh, and then we would share that. But during the day, sometimes we would go hungry, starving. And it got so worse that we started going to the street. We would go to the street, and we would take sticks, and we would scavenge for food from a dumpster. There was this huge dumpster where Everything used to be thrown out, the trash, garbage. And the problem with that is that you could get sick with malaria, typhoid, cholera. And I saw so many kids like getting so sick. And sometimes when you get sick and you don't have a way to 
provide or to prove that you'll be able to uh, or guarantee payment for treatment. Sometimes kids would just die waiting or just in the house, maybe spending, uh, depending on uh, painkillers and that kind of stuff. And I remember one time when I was seven years old, uh, my mother, who was very hardworking, she could not go to work anymore because for some time she was sick. She was uh, kind of hiding her sickness because she really didn't want her heartbreak to heartbreak her children, and she did not have any way of paying for treatment or guaranteeing payment for getting treatment. And she got worse, and she was taken to hospital. But by the time she got to hospital, it was too late for her because the lady, a friend of hers, who took her to hospital came back and said, I'm so sorry, kids. Your mom did not make it. And um, it was at, at that moment that I realized not only my life was hopeless, but it was even beyond hopelessness. Uh, one thing about poverty, poverty is not about lack of money, clothes, whatever. I used to think that was poverty, but actually poverty is lack of hope. If you don't have hope in anything and to see tomorrow, well, that's what poverty does to your mind. You don't even have the opportunity to work hard because why are you working hard? You have no hope. You have nothing to look up to. And I remember living with uh, my grandmother, my aunties. Uh, I remember I would go to my aunt's place and, you know, I had that, it's called poverty mentality, lack, scarcity mentality, where if my, when my aunt would make food in the evening, you know, I would wake up at night and steal food and put it in my pocket because I didn't know we would have food tomorrow. And I would get in trouble with so many things because of the being such a burden to everyone. At the age of nine, I found myself being in the street as a homeless street children. I think uh, Pastor Jeremy uh, mentioned something about street children, at-risk children, and I was one of those children who just decided, you know, I'm going to be in the street, and whatever happens here in the street, it's okay. This is my life. And sometimes I would see children with their parents going to school. In, in Kenya, in East Africa, you wear school uniform when you are going to school. And so you can tell a child that's not going to become anything and a child that has hope and a future for the country, uh, someone who is going to become an important person in society, they are respected. I would see them go to school and I really longed for that. Uh, they would be holding hands with their parents and going to school in the in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, I, they are healthy. And on the other side, myself and other children, you know, we were just like, we don't have shoes, we can steal from you, people fear us, people get run away from us, people don't talk to us, they just pass us on the street. Um, uh, running away from, you know, police or something happening in the street, and it was a difficult life at age of nine, without hope completely. I had lost hope. One time when I was in the street and seeing those kids, I started kind of desiring in my heart that God still exists. Amen? 
And I still knew somehow God will not forsake me nor leave me, that God is my dad. I've, I had heard um, someone preach in the street. In, in Nairobi, you, you, can, you, know, you can pronounce the gospel of Christ anywhere in the street. You can take a mic and just preach. And so some pastors do that in the street. And I've heard, I've, I had heard one person mention that God fed the children of Israelites. And those are his children. And anyone who uh, accepts Jesus, you become uh, a child of God. And so uh, one time, as a child, I'm walking in the street, and I'm praying. And I, I was praying, God, if you, if you change my situation, if you, if, you, if you get me out of the situation that I am, Lord, I will always live for you. I will always follow you. I will always, I want you to be my dad. I want you to. I want myself to be your child. I want to, anytime I pray for something or talk to you, I want to feel that father, fatherly, like literally like my father. And actually, things started happening in my life slowly. I'm walking in the street one time. Uh, I remember it was a dirt street. And I was starving. I think I had not had some, something to eat for like two days or 24 hours or something like that. And I'm shaking. I'm almost throwing up because I have nothing in my stomach. And I remembered, oh, I can talk to God. I can pray. I can, I can ask him anything. I started praying. I started saying, hey, God, I know you fed the children of Israel with manna. And I'm walking. And I used to take things literally. So, and I prayed, God, as my dad, I want you to feed me manna now. So I'm walking, waiting for manna to come from heaven. Amen? <laughs> that's the best thing and beauty about uh, children. And uh, that's why I think Jesus is saying, like, let the ch small children come to me because the kingdom of God is there. Because they don't think. They just do things. And I'm just praying. Uh, uh, behind me, there was a truck that passed me. This truck used to supply bread in different kiosks. Uh, it was from a company that used to sell bread. And when it passed me, because it was a rough road and, you know, it was dust and everything, five pieces of bread dropped out of this truck. <laughs> you know, and I, I really did not expect that God to answer that prayer so fast. <laughs> so I'm collecting all this bread and sharing with my friends in the street and they thought, wow, what happened? Did you steal this? I'm like, no, I was just praying and, you know, this truck just came and gave me bread and I don't care where it came from. I, I got fed, amen? And, and, and I had to share because if I would have kept it to myself, it would have gone bad. The same thing with manna. It used to go bad immediately. So God just fed me according to what I needed that time. So I started realizing, wow, God exists. He is real. This was not just a coincidence. Amen? He is real. And I continue praying. And I continue waiting upon him. One time I was in the garbage, you know, scavenging for food. There was a young man who was going to church. And he saw me. For some reason, he kind of just loved me and liked me and approached me and asked me. His name was Kenneth. Um, and he asked me, hey, uh, young man, what are you doing in the street? Uh, I, I told him about my story. He's like, can I invite you to church? I'm like, absolutely. So we went to church with him. When we got to church, there was something special about that church. There was 
probably about 350 children running around. They were so happy, very well dressed. They were just smiling. Everyone in that church is just like this church, just loving, hugging you, just loving on you and feeding you. So they gave me some new clothes to wear. They gave me some shoes. Exactly what the Bible say about feeding the poor. You know, you saw me uh, naked, but you did not clothe me, or you gave me clothes. You know, they were fulfilling that word of God by just loving on these children. One thing I did not know is that compassion, this was compassion. To, I, to me, was, I thought it was a feeding program. What compassion does sometimes, it does, compassion does not have a signboard saying this is compassion. It's the name of the church. There has to be a church for compassion to operate. So compassion operates in the, the church program, like children program and that kind of stuff. So this is what was happening. I came to realize all these children are actually just like me. They have the same situation I am in, but they are different because they are registered in the program of compassion. And so they registered me in this program. And for me, I was so excited coming to that church. They were able to take me back to school. I would come there. We would go to that church. Uh, we would be in school um, Monday through Friday. And then Saturday, we would come to the church for the compassion program, uh, the center. There would be a lot of activities the children do and writing letters and that kind of stuff and so many other stuff for the children, for their development. And then on Sunday, we would come back to church now on a Sunday, like Sunday service. So you didn't have any time to do stuff in the street or even go back to the street. They kept you busy. I remember one time, every time we would come to this compassion uh, center, we would eat balanced diet meal. And then as compassion staff would come after lunch and we would all be seated and everyone is quiet. They would come in front there with a huge stack of letters and then they would start calling out names. These are letters written by sponsors all over the world who sponsor kids uh, in that program, in that village, um, and they would call them names. And I, I did not know actually, at some point I did not have a sponsor, but I, I really longed for that relationship because the kids would just run, pick that letter, they would sit down, they would open there's like photos of their sponsors with their dogs in the house. Um, I, I was wondering why dogs are doing in the house. And so we would, laugh. I would see all those things. I'm like, man, you know, they would send like snow and some stuff. And, and sometimes some children go for a long time just wanting that. And one time my name was called and finally I got a sponsor. And when, amen. When you get a sponsor through the program of compassion, what that happens is it's like a stamp that has already been stamped in your life that, man, you're going to make it. You get someone that will encourage you, will, will, there, will, will be there for you just to support you, not just financially, but to speak words of life in your life. My sponsor told me, uh, David, we love you. That was the first time when I opened one of the letters that I've ever heard anyone say, we love you, or I love you. And you would be wondering, what about your mom? Even my mom, my mother could not say those words because they are so sentimental and we were just surviving. I know she loved me from the action, the things that she was doing to us and working hard, but not those words. So those words were so powerful for me. And they told me, God has great plans for you to give you hope and a future. Amen? And they are not planned to harm you. 
and they continue speaking these great things. They told me that we have a photo, a picture of you on our refrigerator. I didn't know what the refrigerator was, but it was at least somewhere they could see and pray for me. Amen. And, and my, there were so many other compassion staff, they would encourage us, they would translate the letters, we would write back to and fro, and they would explain things from a, pers a different perspective for us to understand uh, the different life here and there in, in Africa. And I remember one time, I was the first person in my family uh, from my mother's side and my uh, father's side, the whole generation, to ever graduate not only from college, even high school. And through the program of Compassion, God made it possible for me to graduate with a degree in political science and international relations. <laughs> Amen. And that changed the trajectory of the whole family. That is a, is a, it's called a social poverty. So when that is broken, the next generations everyone will be a graduate in that family, in that generation to come, amen? And right now, my brothers and sisters and my nieces and nephew and all of them, they are going to school, they are out of extreme poverty. But one great thing that happened in my life was when I received Christ in my life because that's when poverty left me, amen? Because that's the greatest poverty of all. You know, breaking the chain of spiritual poverty in a whole generation. Hallelujah. And so, sponsorship or supporting children living in extreme poverty in another country is one way of going there and fulfilling the gospel, the great commission of go ye into the world and make disciples of all nations. Amen? And so, my sponsor, probably when they picked that packet and filled out their information and everything, they probably did not know how much impactful, how much impact they were going to make. Because not only was, were they sponsoring me, but they were causing a ripple effect of so many other great impact in my life, my family life, the life of my generations to come, the whole village, and making a disciple. Amen? And so they made a disciple. I met my sponsor. She lives in... A, uh, Portland, Oregon, and my children always go there to help her with sometimes with gardening and that kind of stuff. And uh, when she sponsored me, she was not in good health, uh, but she was able to see that this this kid is in the worst situation than I am because I'm safe. And I was asking her, how how come you were able to sponsor me while you were going through what you were going through? And she was like, you know, I could relate. And I, she told me that, you know, you needed more of my support than I needed. I, you, you know, I have everything. I have already been blessed. I live here. Uh, I'm safe. But I needed to do more than what I could do so that I have that sacrifice. That she would sacrifice for us because she sponsored like three children. Yeah, she was not working or anything, but she sacrificed a lot. And sometimes sponsorship, it's all about that sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that changes lives in a, such an extreme way. And today I'm blessed. I was able to live to explain and to, to, to give God glory in such a congregation that God left, let me live so that I can come here and proclaim his goodness and his glory. Amen? And 
I never knew I would ever live to even have my own family. So today I'm married and I have four beautiful boys, awesome kids. Um, and I have the privilege today, I don't usually, when I'm traveling, speaking, I don't usually have this privilege to actually travel with uh, my family. So I'm, I have my wife here today. <laughs> and my little boy that um, he is uh, one month old, his name is Israel. Uh, the, the other, amen. Uh, the other three boys are back home. I have uh, the firstborn is Shalom. Amani and uh, of course David. I couldn't find a, a cool name, so I just called him David. <laughs> Shalom and Amani means peace. Uh, I mean peace. Uh, it's Swahili name for peace is Amani, and Shalom is a, a, a Hebrew name, mean peace. So when I named them, I thought they would be peaceful, but pff, nothing. <laughs> they terrorized the house. <laughs> But they are so awesome. I'm so glad that God made it possible for me to be here today and come and fellowship with you. So I encourage you today, don't leave this place without sponsoring a child. Amen. Let us not leave a single child on that table today. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Thank you so much, brother. wonder about uh, asking any of our kids, uh, when you grow up, would you want to be a prostitute or a thief? Yeah. You want to work for $1 a day? Sleep on a cardboard bed. Ooh. Poverty is a lack of hope. Man, where'd you get that? Google? And there's a bunch of packets out there, and I, I wonder if uh, we went out and we said, you know what, hey, I'm going to commit to 38 bucks a month, 38 bucks a month, and I'm going to change that. Poverty is a lack of hope to hope without lacking. 38 bucks a month, I did the math, it's like seven caramel macchiatos. Foregoing one entree, depending on where you go. It's like two gallons of gas and a dozen eggs. <laughs> what does it go to? Some like organization that's like not very reputable. No, 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 no. It's got like the highest score you can get. Um, and what does your benefit, what does a child benefit from your 38 bucks a month? Love, education, supplements against malnutrition, health care to fight back against disease and sickness, Christ-centered guidance, guidance, recreational activities to protect from crime and violence and danger. Okay, all right, I, I'm sold pretty much. But uh, how about this part right here? Compassion-supported children. This is exactly what David was talking about. They spend an average of 4,000 hours in safe nurturing programs. They're up to 40% more likely to finish secondary education, are up to 80% more likely to graduate college, are up to 75% more likely to become leaders in their communities. And I've got this weird thing going on now in my life where I'm beginning to see numbers and finances in terms of compassion sponsorships. 
uh, we were talking about, um, I know some people struggle with alcohol and alcohol is, is uh, a vice. Uh, it can also be used in a way that's glorifying to God. That's a separate sermon, doesn't need to get into it now. But we were kind of like, how come my parents didn't sign us up for that wine club they did that one year? I don't know how much it cost. It's probably like 400 bucks. But then I was beginning to think, well, how many compassion sponsors could we, could we partake in with $400? I mean, it was amazing to consider an upside down kingdom instead of the way that the world works. And so, as David was saying, let's be the church where there are no packets left out there. Let's be the kind of church where compassion has to say, like, you know what, we've got tons more sponsorships available. And let's be the, let's be the church who God has called us to be. Generous, loving, caring, supporting. You can support 10 kids today. I don't care. Just don't fall back on it. You can support 20. I don't know. You can support one and make a, make a, a life change right there. But let's thank God for this opportunity that we have to give. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you have done in us. You've gutted us today in some profound ways. And I pray, God, that we would be changed because of it, that we would respond either by, by sponsoring a compassion child or, or doing something different in our own lives. Whatever it may be, I pray, God, that we would put it all on the line for you, that we would truly what it, know what it means to, to humbly sacrifice because you have done far more. We give you all glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name.